All right, good morning. Uh, welcome to King's Chapel. My name is Andy Wozniki. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, our lead pastor, Andrew Henley, is in India for the week, and uh, he is over there with Jim Whittle training pastors on how to preach. And so he's very well qualified to do that. Uh, let's keep Andrew uh, in our prayers this week, along with Jim and their team, and also Meredith and their kids. Uh, she's here uh, taking care of them without Andrew. I know she could use some help in our prayers. Hey, this morning we're kicking off a new series. You can see the slide on the screen. And uh, as a means of introduction, I want you guys to consider a question with me. Now, we all just had sort of this little meet and greet moment where you were interacting with people. Uh, rather than just saying hello, what if I would have said to you, I want you to tell the person you're talking to three very important things about your life. What would you have chosen to say? I might say something like, my name is Andy Wozniki. I have a beautiful wife and four amazing children. And right now, particularly this morning, I'm so thankful to live in the South because I don't know if you know this or not, but my dad lives in Wisconsin, and he has snow this morning. He got snow. It's almost May, and he, they have snow. So I'm really thankful to be in Georgia this morning. But what would you have said about yourself if you had uh, an opportunity to say three things? Do you realize that uh, Jesus made three summary statements about himself in the New Testament, and he started it off this way. He said, the Son of Man came... And then he said three different things. Now, two of them, uh, if you know Jesus, you're not that surprised. Uh, the first one is in Luke 19.10. Jesus came, it says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That makes a lot of sense. The second time that Jesus uses this description of himself, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, that's a radical statement in and of itself, uh, surprising, but, but honestly, if we know Jesus, we're like, okay. Now, the third time he says it, I, when I read it, I was shocked, and I'm not sure if you would be able to guess it. The Son of Man came, what would you say? The Son of Man came, we read in Luke 7, verse 34, eating and drinking. Son of Man came eating and drinking. What? What in the world does that mean, that the Son of Man came eating and drinking? Well, I think that what Jesus just told us, among other things, is that he came to do eternally significant things in just the normal, everyday circumstances of life. Let me say that again. Jesus came to do eternally significant things, life-changing, universe-changing things, just in the everyday, normal, right here, down-to-earth, mundane activities of life. And so what we want to do with this series is we want to talk about the meals, primarily in Luke's gospel, and there's a lot of them, where Jesus is eating and drinking with everyday people. And we want to watch Jesus in action. One commentator said, in, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, he is at a meal, or he is coming from a meal. And what is it about this very common activity, just eating and drinking, that J Jesus tends to do such important work? And how does he do that work in the everyday of our lives? What is happening in the lives of the people who are present with him in those meals? That's what we're trying to see. 
Is he working like this in your life? Do you want him to? Would you welcome him to work like that in your life? So these are some of the questions we want to explore with this series. As I was getting ready to preach this morning, I was thinking back about, through my life about how many significant, important things have happened for me around a meal. I can remember being at Lakeside Cafeteria at Georgia Southern University, uh, having, a, having pizza with a fraternity brother when I heard the gospel proclaimed to me for the first time. And I can remember uh, having biscuits and eggs at the local Arby's. They serve breakfast in our town in Statesboro. When I first learned how to study the Bible for myself, every Sunday after church, while I was growing in my faith uh, in college, I was invited over to the lead pastor's house along with six or seven other adopted college students for, the, for our time in school, and we would sit with him and we would ask him questions about life and parenting and marriage and Jesus and evangelism, and he would sit there, this pastor and his family would sit there, and they would just share about Jesus with us. I grew so much during that time. Melissa and I, obviously, we had our first meal, uh, a meal on our first date. We had the spread of all spreads at our wedding reception, and it was just about a year ago when Pastor Henley uh, invited me to come to Carrollton for my first interview with King's Chapel, and he took me to the illustrious Brown Dog Deli in Carrollton, Georgia. I wouldn't have had it any other way. My most significant moments seem to have played out over a good meal. I suspect that they have for you as well. And when you look at something and think about this as simple as just your dining room table, it's just this table that's there in your dining room or your kitchen every day, four chairs around it, maybe six, eight, ten, depending on the size of your family. But when you think about how life has played out at that dinner table and some of the things that have happened birthday parties and graduations and celebrations and conversations that you've had, moments where you've been frustrated, there's been fights, there's been tears, the moments of forgiveness, the visitors that you've had, the news that you've shared with each other, so much of life, it seems, happens around the dinner table. And that was true for Jesus as well. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to start with this one verse, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And we're going we're gonna to zoom in on it, but then we're going to sort of zoom out a little bit at a time and look at the passages around it. So when we zoom out just a little bit, here's what we read. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It seems that Jesus was doing enough eating and drinking that his critics could look at him and say, that's a little excessive. You're doing a lot of eating and drinking. Uh, he ate too much. He drank too much. He didn't pray and fast enough. Uh, the Pharisees said, look at John's disciples. Look at what they're doing. They're doing the right thing. They're fasting. They're praying. They're serious. But your disciples, Jesus, are always eating and drinking. And it was those meals that provided the context for Jesus to do some of the most amazing missional work. In a book, uh, A Meal with Jesus, Tim Chester writes, Jesus spent his time eating and drinking, a lot of his time. His mission strategy was a long meal, often stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship 
around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. Listen, Andrew tasked me with probably the easiest sermon series ever. I just want you to convince these people to eat more food. You got it? All right, I'm leaving. I got it. I think I can handle it. Uh, It's going to be easy. Hey, but here's what I want you to see in this series as we dive into this passage this morning. Food in the Bible, okay, is frequently used to represent something big, something weighty, and something substantial. God talks about these mega themes, salvation and judgment, and he uses food as a metaphor. When he talks about the hearts of people, he describes them in terms of good food and bad food. And in this passage that we're looking at, Jesus' eating and drinking was a sign of friendship with tax collectors and sinners. The excessive amount of food and drink was a sign of his excessive grace that he offered to tax collectors and sinners, people who didn't deserve it. So in other words, these meals, they're simple, they're everyday, and yet they also represent something big. They represent a new world a new covenant, a whole new outlook on life, new grace. And they weren't just the symbols, they were the application of these realities as well. And so that's what we're going to dive in to look at. Carolyn Steele in Hungry City writes, few acts are more expressive of companionship than the shared meal. Someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or well on the way to becoming one. So here's what I want to do as we introduce this series. I want you to understand that you were made for eternally significant things and that God has called you to participate in a mission that is huge and big and weighty and eternal, but that the primary way that he is going to fulfill that mission in and through your lives is surprising. It's just through the ordinary everyday stuff of going to work, meeting people, building friendships, and having a meal. And honestly, we've got to get our hands around that dynamic. We've got to understand what Jesus is all about, what his mission really looks like, and how we get to participate. Because to the, to the degree that we don't understand that, I think we'll either say, it's too big. I can't preach I can't go on overseas missions trips all the time. It's just too big for me. And so we won't try. Or else we'll reduce it down to just, uh, you know, the ordinary everyday stuff of life and we'll settle into our culture around us and do what they're doing instead of daring to be a part of something great. So here's the first question. We're going to set this series up, this uh, sermon up, and look at three questions that Jesus asks. And here's the first question Uh, As we zoom out a little bit more in chapter 7, we get to verse 24 through 26, and Jesus asks a question, what did you go out to see? Now, here's the context. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John, and he says, what did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Now, here's the context of of Luke 7. John and his disciples are confused about Jesus. They're seeing something happen. 
but they're not sure that it's the right thing that's happening. And they're not really sure that Jesus is doing it the right way, the way that they expected it to happen, to be done. So John, who has put his life and ministry on the line and currently is in Herod's prison cell on death row, he's got questions. I want to know, is this the guy we're supposed to be expecting? Are you the one? Or should we expect someone else? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus' response to that question in Luke 7 is meant to do two things. So Jesus is going to respond to that question. And his response is meant to do two things. One, to assure John and his followers that yes, You've got it right about who I am. But also, his question, Jesus' response is going to put his finger on something deeper in our hearts and in the hearts of his audience. It's going to put his finger on our unbelief. So I want you to track with me for a minute. Jesus' response goes like this. Are you the one? That's what John says. It begins in verse 21. And then Jesus, as a response to that, begins healing people. The deaf folks, the blind folks, the the people there who are sick. And then part two of Jesus' response is the question, what did you think you were going to see? A reed swayed by the wind? What did you think you were going to see? What did you go out to see? Think about somebody asking you a question like that three times in a row. What if I were to do that to you right now? Why are you here this morning? Why are you here this morning? I want to know, why are you here this morning? When somebody does that, you see, it begins to probe your heart. And it begins to surface. Uh, it, it stops you in your tracks. It causes you to focus and to say, wait a minute, what's underneath that question? So when it comes to the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, what are you really looking for? When you came out, what did you expect to see? Now, we've talked a lot about this at King's Chapel recently, especially as we've been around Easter. But the Son of Man came eating. So the Son of Man is this title about the Messiah that comes from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, the people of God are in Babylonian exile. And they are waiting for a new super David type king to come kick butt and take names, to rescue them and to bring them back to their own home country. They are waiting, they, they are expecting super grace. They are expecting renewed mercy for sure. But for the enemies of God, their political adversaries, this Messiah was going to come and lay waste. He was bringing judgment to the enemies. So there's this picture of power and glory, and all the nations and their rulers were going to bow down to this new everlasting kingdom. But when Jesus begins to take a little bit different approach, people are like, hey, this is a little less noisy than we thought it was going to be. Where's the, the army's not coming together the way we thought it was. And uh, honestly, I'm not sure that this is what we were anticipating. And so Jesus's question, hey, what did you expect to see is really a more profound and fundamental issue for our hearts as we consider Jesus and his mission This is not the way I thought it was going to turn out. Think about the places in life where you have questions like that right now. What Jesus should be fixing, what he should be doing, what you'd like to see happening, what evidence would have to come to light that would assuage your doubts about Jesus, that would satisfy your demands. 
Be honest about that. Now, Jesus says, as you think about what you came out to see and what you are demanding to see, I want you to be careful. Because if there is a heart of unbelief, then what you think you need to see is really not the issue at all. Look at verse 31. Jesus says, to what can I compare this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace. They're calling out to each other. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. Here's the translation. We played a happy song for you and you did not dance. You said, I'm not in the mood. So we played a sad song, but you didn't cry. You said, I'm not in the mood. Uh, John came fasting and praying and he went into the wilderness and you said, John's too serious for me. You know, uh, I can't take a prophet that's that austere and in your face and rigid. John is way too conservative for me. Jesus came eating and drinking and you say he's a glutton and he's a drunkard. Uh, you know, Jesus, uh, he's a little too loose. He's a little too excessive. He's a little too liberal for me. You see what, um, what we're hearing Jesus say in this moment is that it could be not that you're just not seeing what you think you need, but the deeper issue could be a heart of unbelief, that what God has come to do does not fit your paradigm for world-changing renewal and personal transformation. And Jesus' implication with this first question, what did you come to see, is implying that we might be looking in the wrong direction. So what is God up to in the world? And that leads us to our second question. Jesus asks the second question that shows us what God is really up to in the world. Now here's the setup. After Jesus asks that first question, there's a scene shift in Luke 7. They go to a meal, and he's at the, the house of a Pharisee. And while he's at that meal, this woman, the town harlot, crashes the party. She makes a huge scene. She's uninvited. She's scandalous. And frankly, she's a hot mess. So in verse 48, Jesus says to her something crazy. He says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, this is the second time that Jesus has said, your sins are forgiven to somebody in Luke's gospel. The first time happens two chapters earlier in Luke 5. Here's what happens. Some guys have a friend. He's paralyzed. But they have faith that Jesus can do something about it. So they put this man on a wooden pallet. They drill a hole through the roof, and they drop him down, and they say, Jesus, would you do something about this? And Jesus looks at this man and says, your sins are forgiven. He sees their faith and he recognizes, they believe I can do something about this. Your sins are forgiven. So now we have two people, a broken man, physically disfigured in Luke 5, a broken woman, emotionally, psychologically ruined in Luke 7. And in both of them, Jesus sees faith, but his response to them is, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're like me, you were hoping for something bigger. I was hoping to see your superpowers in action. And that's what the people in the crowd wanted to see as well. In fact, Jesus does heal this man. But before he heals him, 
he asks a second question. It's our second question. Which is easier? Which is easier for me to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to heal the paralytic? Okay? The, the, the healing, that's the part I want to see, the superpowers. That's got to be harder. It'd be easier to just say to forgive his sins. And to me, this also begins to drum up something in my heart. I got to say that in our house right now, all we're talking about is the Avengers movie, right? It's out now, Endgame. So we got to see it. We got to see it now. And if you want to talk about big scale, mega problems, uh, well, this is it. Because there is a powerful enemy, and right now he has all the infinity stones. And he has just decimated half of the universe's population. And so we need big heroes. We need big heroes to swoop in, okay, with axes and superpowers and to fly and to shoot laser beams. If anything is going to happen uh, in our world, we need big green monsters and, uh, and people who've been bitten by radioactive spiders. I'll never forget, it was probably a couple years ago, that they remade some of the Superman movies, and there was a scene in one of the Superman movies where uh, there was a bad guy on the roof, and he had a Gatling gun, and he was just hosing people down on the streets. And so these two police officers, they want to stop him. They go up to the roof, and as he get, they get up there, the guy with the gun starts turning it on them. And before they realize it, it's just, doo -doo 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 -doo, and it's coming their way, and Superman, whoosh, he swoops in, and at the last minute, he's standing in front of the officer, so the bullets from this gun are just ricocheting on And he just starts walking towards the bad guy. The bullets are flying everywhere. And so finally, the bad guy's like, I'm in trouble. So as Superman gets right in front of him, I mean, He's right there, eyeballed. The, the bad guy pulls out a pistol. He puts it up to Superman's eye, and he pulls the trigger. And in slow motion, you see the bullet go, and it goes into Superman's eye, but then it just goes, and falls on the ground. And Superman just smiles, because he's indestructible. Now listen, listen, this is, this is crazy. Like, this is this is what we think is big and amazing and awesome. And frankly, if you talk to a first century Jew and what they thought the Messiah was going to be like, that was much more of the vision than Jesus came eating and drinking. What? He came to deal with sin? What? To forgive and cleanse someone from their sin? Which is easier? That's the question Jesus poses before us. And when he puts that question in front of us, I think what he's doing is he's exposing some things in our hearts. One, now that I'm a Christian and I have the Holy Spirit living inside of me, what are my superpowers really for? Um, and secondly, there's a lie that I'm tempted to believe about sin that it's really not that big of a deal. That my small, daily, commonplace, and ordinary sins, they don't matter that much that I can deal with them on, their, on my own, that they're really not hideous and sinister and destructive and toxic to my relationship with God and with other people. This stuff is just small potato sin. I mean, it's really not that big of a deal at all. It might not even be sin. It might just be my upbringing. It might be uh, a bad night's sleep. 
It might be that I just ate the wrong food and I'm a little stressed out. I mean, that's not really sin. Uh, it's certainly not worthy of going through this whole repentance and faith routine and bringing Jesus and getting him involved. And I think what Jesus is trying to tell us is there is so much more at stake than you possibly realize when you think about your common, mundane, ordinary, commonplace sin that you let go unresolved and in your heart and in your relationships and in your lives. There's way more at stake. Sin is a big deal. Which is easier, Jesus asks, to lead a community group, to preach the sermon, to teach the Sunday school class, to be a leader on a ministry team, to give big bucks to the capital campaign? Which is easier, to do those things or to go to somebody who you are bitter towards and who has hurt you and to say, I'm going to let you off the hook. I forgive you. I mean, think about that. What about when you've hurt somebody and you know it, which is easier to go to them, call them on the phone, get them face to face, and in a tender way say, I'm so sorry. And this stuff is everyday stuff. Think about your spouse. Think about your kids. Think about the stuff you're struggling with with them. Is it easier? Which is easier? Sometimes I think, you know, uh, I am failing. I'll, I'll take the cape. I want to shoot laser beams for a little while. Because honestly, I am powerless to defeat sin. Just the common, ordinary stuff. So like, which is easier? Is it easier to put the phone aside in the morning and to not run to news right away or political stories or Facebook or email and to go spend some time with the Lord? Which is easier, to put your phone down and engage with the people around you? Which is easier, not to, you know, uh, just run past an opportunity for a relationship because you're in task mode? Which is easier, to, to apologize? I think this is what Jesus is asking is do you have any sense of that in your daily life that this stuff is serious and it's important? And when I just think of my sin as, ah, well, whatever, you know, no. We've got to get with Jesus. We need cleansing. We need, we need to do what it takes to apologize, to repent, to not live in our daily sin and defensiveness and dismissiveness. It's just so ordinary that, that sometimes we, we just coast right past it. There's a lady named Julie Canlis. Her and her husband, Matt. Matt was a pastor. He went to seminary for a little while in Scotland. So they moved over to Scotland for 17 years. And they had some kids over there. When they came back, uh, the kids began to say to mom, hey, why do all the billboards in, in America say, that's the best, we're the biggest, we are the greatest in the world? They don't talk like that in Scotland. Why do they talk like that in America? And Julie said, uh, I hadn't really noticed it before, but in a book she wrote recently called The Theology of the Ordinary, listen to what she said. She said, it seemed like all my new acquaintances were reading books called Radical, and passion, and crazy love, relentless, impact, fervent. In fact, that year's biggest Christian conference was called Passion, and I couldn't help but notice 
that it was held in none other than Atlanta's Infinity Energy Center. Now, none of this is in and of itself wrong, but if it comes with an expectation, one that has the potential to do more damage than good, and so without an equal emphasis on discipleship in normal life, where our energy is less than infinite, the gospel can become unbalanced and undeveloped. I think at times the gospel can become unbalanced and undeveloped in my life when I am not willing to look at my sin, just the daily sin, the way that I ignore my kids or run past my spouse, my wife, the way that I've hurt her or done whatever, and I'm not willing to take the gospel into the everyday mundane stuff and really let it work its, its course in me so that where it leads me is getting in front of my kids and my spouse and saying, I'm sorry, I blew it, I really did, in such a way that they know, well, then the gospel is undeveloped in our lives. We're not letting it do the big thing it's meant to do, where we get to experience power and transformation. And so part of what this series is about is an invitation back, not just to the meals, but to normal, everyday, day in and day out, discipleship and mission in the everyday life. So what does this all have to do with meals? Here's the big idea. When Jesus said, the Son of Man came, this big idea, he came to do extraordinary things in very normal circumstances. And in Luke 7, after he's been teaching about what real life change looks like, he doesn't go to a mountaintop, he doesn't preach a sermon, he doesn't get out in the boat and put a little way from the shore. He goes and he has a meal. He has dinner. And in that context, Jesus asks our third question. Who will love more? Who will love more? Most of you know the backstory here. Let's do a quick refresher. We mentioned it already a little bit. Jesus and his disciples have been invited to dinner. The Pharisee who invited them, his name is Simon. He's a religious leader who wants to see if Jesus really is who he claims to be. And suddenly the scandalous woman we mentioned earlier shows up. She had a sinful life in that town. It says in the Bible, she interrupts the meal. And this woman it intends to anoint Jesus with oil. But as she gets in front of Jesus and sees the offer of forgiveness and who he is, she believes. And she is overwhelmed with emotion. So in light of the grace, she begins to cry, and suddenly her tears have made Jesus' feet wet. So wanting to make the situation better, she actually makes it worse, and she does something that no decent woman in that culture would have done. She lets her hair down. She gets down on her knees. She begins wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and begins kissing his feet. It was promiscuous and suggestive, and everybody around them is shocked. But Simon the Pharisee in verse 39 is thinking to himself, I think I have my answer. I was wondering if this guy was the real deal. He is clearly not, because if this man were a prophet, he'd know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, and that she is a sinner. And here is where Jesus has a different kind of Superman moment. He says, hey, Simon, and he knows what he's thinking. He said, Simon, let me ask you a question. If two people owed, owed money to the same money lender, 
One guy owes 50, say the other guy owes 50,000, and the money lender lets both of them off the hook and says, you don't owe me anything else. Who do you think would love more? That's our third question. And then he turns to the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she, she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. And therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Bum, 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 bum. That's the Superman moment. What's he using his superpowers for? Man, he extends grace to this woman. He reminds everybody in that room where the real spiritual problems are in this world, what the mega problems are. And it looks so ordinary. I mean, Simon, his big problem is he has a blockade in his heart. He can't see his sin because he has the dam of the mundane. There is a dam in his heart. And it's just the mundane little stuff that he doesn't think is a big deal. So he sweeps it under the rug and he sees her and he can't understand what's right in front of him. And Jesus said, wisdom is proved right in her actions. That's how he set this whole scene up. Or rather, true wisdom about God and who he is always plays itself out in the lives of those who follow him in faith. And so what Luke is doing is he's showing us what a simple, ordinary meal can do and what God does for it when his love impacts a human heart. It completely flips upside down their picture of the Messiah. Yeah, yeah, the Messiah was supposed to come and bring new grace and new healing and forgiveness, but he was also going to confront the enemies of God and he was going to condemn them with judgment. Guess what just happened at a meal? That's what just happened. He brought unexpected grace. He brought mercy. He brought the outsiders in and the enemies of God. Our prideful hearts were confronted. He did it at a meal. So here's my hope for this series as we travel from meal to meal with Jesus and Luke's gospel is that we would learn to look and see a new kind of greatness. You, you really were made for greatness. You and I, as C.S. Lewis said, have a weight of glory that has been given to us. And yet at the same time, we are called to manifest and live that out in such ordinary, normal, everyday ways. Jesus does extraordinarily, eternally significant things as we begin to show up with faith. And I don't want us to miss that our lives are supposed to be passionate and sold out. So I want you to hear this quote, the second quote from Julie Canlis in her book. She wrote The Theology of the Ordinary. We quoted it earlier. But here's her second quote from the book. Nevertheless, while I'm flagging the danger in a cultural obsession with passion and impact, I'm equally wary of rejecting it. As encouraging is the trend toward recovering the holiness of ordinary life, it will be lifeless if it is animated only by a, by a reaction against fundamentalist dualism. 
We must be on our guard, lest a recovery of the ordinary life becomes no more than a blessing of the status quo, devoid of sacrifice or hope for the future. In that case, a, ton, a tonic of fundamentalist fervor might not be that bad after all. Our theology must be marked by the benediction of the Father, the sacrifice of the Son, and the overflow of the Holy Spirit. A robust Trinitarian theology of the ordinary should never undermine being passionate or sold out, but instead it will ground and purify it. I think that's awesome. Here, here's, here's how I want us to think about this as we close. Remember when Jesus went into the wilderness in Luke chapter 4? Um, remember how he's tempted? This would have been a really good time for his superpowers to show up. Okay? So he gets out in the wilderness, and the, the, he's tempted right away with hunger. Can anybody relate to that? I'm hungry. I have physical needs. <sighs> what I'm feeling is dominating me. You know how else he's tempted? Uh, he's tempted to take shortcuts. You have all this power. Uh, how about you just hand it to me and I will give you what you came for anyway. All these people applauding you. Use your power, use your authority. Get these people to worship you. Take a shortcut. Have you ever been tempted to want to take a shortcut and not do the hard thing? I do all the time. You know what else Jesus is tempted with? He says... How about you throw yourself off the mountain? If God really cared for you, he would save you. He would protect you. Do you ever struggle with the temptation? Does God really care about me? You see what Jesus is being tempted with is the very same ordinary stuff that we're tempted with all the time. But he endures the stuff I can't say no to for five minutes. Jesus spends a lifetime walking this road and enduring for us purchasing for us a record of righteousness. I want him in that desert to start blasting the laser beams at the enemy. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he quotes scripture. And by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the authority of the word of God, he does something that looks mundane and ordinary to us, but he, he shares scripture. He uses scripture. He quotes scripture. Where did he learn all that? Well, in Luke 2, if you back up even more, Luke 2 says that Jesus was a boy, but he grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. He grew in favor with God and man. It was just basic discipleship. Jesus was committed to the word. Jesus lived this really ordinary life of normal discipleship. And he was able to fight the normal temptation for us. And when he purchases this record of righteousness for us, his offer in the gospel is, it's yours. I want to give it to you. Where does our power come from? To be able to live this life, this ordinary life, and see great things happen. It comes through the cross, where he exchanges that record of all that mundane but incredible righteousness. He gives it to me, and he says to me and to you, your sins are forgiven. Why would you not want to come and, and deal with a God like that about your everyday sin, about the bitterness that you want to hold on to? Psalm 32 says, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. 
And listen to what David said. When I kept silent, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away and your hand was heavy upon me. But then I acknowledged my sin and did not cover up my iniquity. I brought my daily garbage, my daily sin. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Brothers and sisters, there's power in the daily, ordinary practice of experiencing the gospel and running towards him and receiving a new record of righteousness for you. So that's what I want this series to be about. And let's pray that he would meet us where we most need him. So Heavenly Father, um, thank you that you have made an incredible offer to your people that we should taste and see that the Lord is good. Thank you, Lord God, that we can come, buy, and eat. We who have no money, we have, who have nothing to bring except our sin, we want to bring that to you during this series, this morning, this week, and we want you uh, to sweep away the mundane part of our heart where we have just let sin linger and we haven't done business with you. So would you call us back to the table? Would you set the table with grace and forgiveness and invite us to dine and to eat, uh, we need to experience gospel renewal again and again and again if we're to other, invite others in to share a meal with us. And so we pray that that would happen throughout the life of this series. In Jesus' name, amen.